Welcome to the Moose Room, everybody. We have a, a interesting podcast today. We have Shane Bedwell. He's from the American Hereford Association today, and we, we got a lot of good things to talk about today. So welcome, Shane. Thank you. Appreciate you having me on. I just want oh. to add, we are also here. Joe and I are here. <laughs> just, oh, oh, yeah. No. Sorry. So this is the first time that they've let me like intro the podcast so i <laughs> yeah everybody you're not, knows you're that not doing a great job brad has already screwed things up but yes <laughs> joe and emily are here kind of a little background before we get into the the nuts and bolts of it is i was listening to a, a webinar that the american hereford association they began a sustainable genetics research project with colorado state university and i thought that was very interesting so I reached out to Shane to hear uh, his perspectives on all of that and and maybe where uh, Hereford Association is going with that research. But first, we have our questions that we do ask every guest beforehand, and we have a running tally that Joel will help us out with. And the first question, we'll, we'll make the dairy one first. So what is your favorite dairy breed? Well, my grandpa had Holsteins uh, growing up, my mom's dad. And so I would kind of a little uh, biased to Holsteins. So I'd have to say Holsteins, but an interesting fact, uh, while at Kansas State University, I was a part of the dairy judging team one semester and I was the high individual in Guernsey. So oh wow, I, uh, at, uh, at one of the contests. So I've got a sweet spot for Guernsey's. Probably didn't expect a beef guy to come up with that answer, but uh, I'm I'm sticking to that. We it's a great answer. That. We will accept that. That's uh yeah. I I was scared that you were going to say Holstein, so I'm totally fine with Guernsey. That's great. <laughs> exactly. All right, here we go. We got Holsteins at 20, Jerseys at 14, Brown Swiss at seven, Montbelliard at three, Dutch Belted at three, Normandy at two, now Guernsey at two, Milking Shorthorn at one, and Ayrshire at one. And we always shout out Taffy, who is a Guernsey that is loved by Eric Mosel. <laughs> and the other question is, of course, you may expect, what is your favorite beef breed? Well, that's an easy one. Everybody loves Hereford, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Everybody's got a soft spot for Herefords. So that is the correct answer. Yes. Yeah, so I was to say, Shade, I feel compelled to tell you that, uh, Brad is convinced that the only right answers are Jersey and Hereford. <laughs> and he has been a little disappointed with Hereford's performance thus far. And right. so we're pretty sure he brought you on just to get another vote in for Hereford. Right. So don't be surprised if he, you know, asks everybody else at the Hereford Association to be on too. <laughs> right. Of course, we genuinely wanted you on, but yes, I, think, yes. I think Brad also right. saw an opportunity to get a little yes. boost to Hereford. Of course, my, my, my grandpa was a Hereford breeder. So there is a soft spot for Herefords in my heart as well. And everyone knows that. So yeah, Joe, what are we up to now? What's the breed tallies? Well, we've got Black Angus at 14. That puts Hereford today at nine. Black Baldies at four. Scottish Highlander at four. Red Angus at three. Belted Galloway at two. Shorthorn at two. And then all with one. 
Stabilizer, Galvi, Brahman, Kini, Nasharle, Simitad, Alore, Jersey, Normandy, Belgian Blue, Brangus, Piedmontese, and White Park. Our guests have a wide range of beef cattle favorites. Right. Thanks for joining us, Shane. And we uh, really are, are interested in hearing about the sustainable genetics research uh, that is beginning. But first off, let's uh, get a little background on you. You know, who you are, uh, what you work with uh, with the Hereford Association, a little uh, background on, on you. And then maybe uh, a little background on the Hereford Association and what services they might offer to their members. Sure, sure. I uh, grew up like uh, most most of you guys here on on the on the podcast and several of the listeners uh, in in ag. My family's uh, rooted. I'm the fifth generation to run livestock and uh, be a part of agriculture. I grew up in South Central Kansas on a grain and cow calf ranch, and uh, my family still operates that ranch today uh, with my granddad and uncle and dad and and their families. And so, you know, it's, it's one of those things in my current job, it's, you know, get a practice what you preach and, and preach what you practice and all those things kind of come together. So it's uh, been very fortunate to have the background that I, I did growing up. I uh, attended Butler County Community College in uh, El Dorado, Kansas, and then uh, transferred to Kansas State University, have a degree in animal science uh, with a business option from Kansas State and was a member of their livestock uh, judging team, uh, both of those places and dairy judged uh, with John Shirley, you know, then went on to the University of Illinois and uh, did uh, my master's there in beef cattle nutrition, finished that up. And then uh, the opportunity to be on faculty at Colorado State University posed itself and uh, spent eight years uh, as the livestock judging coach taught classes and livestock selection, nutrition, advised and did a lot of uh, other things there. I sure miss being out there. And then um, from there, I was hired here to work for the American Hereford Association. I've been with uh, AHA now for seven, almost seven years. And I serve as the chief operating officer and director of breed improvement. Director of breed improvement. What what does that actually mean, and what what sort of services do you provide by uh, being breed improvement? Yeah, so we have four main pillars here at the association, and and one of them is uh, the area that I work in, and and that is kind of our registry and um, our genetic evaluation um, and our total performance program. So. Um, I have a team here with me and, you know, the most important part of any association is protecting the integrity of the pedigree, giving that seal of approval. And so uh, the association started in 1881 and uh, we've been keeping records uh, ever since. So, um, you know, the registration part of it is, is a big one. You know, as we've evolved over time, we've turned in more from a, a data input kind of service to more customer service because a lot of our phenotypic data now is done by the producer online through uh, a program that we call MyHerd. And so about 90% of our data that comes through the producer puts in. And now we're dealing, our our records team here deals with those folks over the phone when they get stuck uh, with, uh, you know, certain things. So 
that's a big part of it. And then, you know, with that is our genetic evaluation. And so, uh, you know, the Hereford breed, you know, would have started their performance recording back in the 60s, you know, and it's evolved from straight phenotypes to, you know, EPDs. And uh, now, of course, you guys are well versed in genomics uh, as well. And we've adopted that and have uh, added to our genetic evaluation, the mixed marker effects model. And, mm -hmm. and uh, it's, it's pretty, pretty neat what, what we get done. And so that's kind of in a nutshell, what, what I'm over, we have a national reference sire program uh, where we do a progeny test from, from birth to harvest and do a lot of neat testing um, as well with those sire groups. And so that's mainly what I'm over. The association would also uh, have our magazine, The Hereford World. We have a, a department there that would uh, publish that magazine. Also catalogs for breeders, um, creative service materials for whether it be postcards or mm -hmm. mailers or that kind of stuff. We have a youth program or junior department, uh, which is growing. So association would be close to 8,000 members and uh, about 3,500 of those are junior members. So it's a big department, you know, a lot of excitement around that. And then our, our fourth pillar would be um, our certified Hereford beef program. So our branded beef product uh, that was established in 1995. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of uh, stuff going on for uh, Hereford breeders and the beef industry. And that's exciting to see, especially, you know, myself as a geneticist and seeing all of the, the great things that are happening with in the genetics world and genomic enhanced EPDs. And uh, for our listeners that are not well versed in the genomics world, the kind of an interesting fact is the first uh, animal that was sequenced that's used for genomic selection was actually a Hereford cow named Dominette. Yep. Uh, out of a, a line one uh, Hereford uh, uh, study that that's happening at the USDA where they're looking at inbreeding. And there's a whole lots of, we could talk about the line one uh, for, for many, many hours, actually. Right. Uh, right. But we are here, actually, I was interested to hear a little bit about your genetics research that you're doing with the uh, Colorado State and looking at sustainable genetics research. So tell us a little bit how, how this kind of came about and, and why might have the AHA decided to go into sort of sustainable genetics, looking at greenhouse gases and methane emissions. Yeah, it, it, it came through several different conversations that uh, we had internally uh, here as a staff. And, um, it was one of those things associations been been committed to research here for quite a while and you know we started uh 2001 fully embracing total herd reporting and uh that makes up our genetic evaluation where you know our breeders have to stay in compliance and submit that phenotypic data and so you know now we've got uh 23 years of of that that good data um in our system and and we've as an association, uh, totally embrace crossbreeding. Um, as you think about, you know, some of the different projects that we've done and conducted, you know, in Harris Ranch in California to uh, some of the uh, ranches here in Missouri, it it kind of seemed like the next step of things that we wanted to do 
to complete a full model because I I would tell you I think today we would we could give pretty good evidence that Herefords do fit in very well to sustainability model and particularly in a crossbreeding setting of being able to boost pregnancy uh, rates. We've shown that a seven to ten percent advantage in the F1 female compared to the the straight uh, bred counterparts. Uh, more pounds of wing calf, more cows bred. Uh, we've done some great efficiency work over time. And, um, you know, through data through the Meat Animal Research Center, uh, we show about a two pound uh, advantage in intake. And so uh, that's a significant edge in conversion. And uh, we just, we, we thought this sustainability project uh, was kind of the next fold it's obviously a hot topic uh, within all of our industries, but it was kind of the next logical step that we could do as an association to establish a benchmark for beef cattle here in the in the U.S. Uh, and specifically Hereford to see kind of where we fit. And then, uh, you know, for a brand beef program that we have, we now have folks in the food service, retail business, uh, you know, the consumer is definitely out there wanting to know more and uh we we have you know papers to cite and and literature to cite but we don't we don't have the actual data and, and that was something that you know our goal is to, to try to develop a an entire model using Hereford genetics whether it be purebred or crossbreeding and how it all fits and so that that was kind of the premise of of why we wanted to start this research with with uh, Colorado State. You know, what sort of information will you be collecting? Will you be going into the feedlots and collecting feed intake data and and trying to get some maybe greenhouse gas measurements on either purebred Herefords or crossbreds to try and get some new information that we could do some selection on? Or how, yep. how might that look? Yep. So um, the National Reference Sire Program I mentioned earlier, that was started in 1999. And so we have a, a great database of over 300, 340 sires that we've used in that period of time. And since 2010, we've measured feed intake and have individual feed intake on those uh, cattle. And so we have a, a great base from a feed efficiency and intake standpoint. And so what we're going to add in, in one of our premier kind of reference sire test heard out in western Nebraska is that we're, we're upgrading those feed intake systems out there with uh, grow safe beef or now mm -hmm. it's with Vitaly. But uh, so we're going to have in-pen weighing. We're, we're adding water intake in at those in-pen weighing systems. And so we'll be measuring feed intake, water intake, and then with our friends at Sealock, we've added in the green feed machines where we will measure uh, you know, all the greenhouse gases. And then on top of that, we'll look at nitrogen excretion through uh, blood urea. So we'll kind of get and be able to have, instead of looking at a correlated trade approach, you know, which we may use in the future, depending on what the data says, but we wanted to really capture it all at one time to be able to hopefully make our feed intake data from the past to be able to utilize that uh, more. So we'll 
we'll, we'll be able to capture the greenhouse gas emissions and, and look at methane specifically, carbon dioxide, and then uh, also nitrogen uh, excretion. Yeah, that's very interesting on all of that data collection. And as a researcher myself, it's like, wow, that's uh, that's pretty extensive. And and I think we have, you know, on this podcast, we've talked with some Vitelli representatives. That maybe was even almost a year ago or more that we've had people from Vitelli on. And, and even, you know, I've explored the green feed system. It's a wonderful system to record methane emissions from cattle, uh, they're out of uh, Rapid City, South Dakota. And so there's there's a lot of great technology that's happening that where we'll be able to collect this information. So I'm I'm really glad that AHA is moving forward, uh, looking at some of that stuff from a breed improvement standpoint, as well as from a livestock industry. And really important uh, as the livestock industry moves forward uh, to, to get that out to consumers as well and um, how to do that. Can we talk a little more about embracing heterosis and crossbreeding? Because I think that that's really interesting to me. And, and I think it's something that is really interesting for a breed association to do. How difficult was that? Was that a difficult choice to make to really bring in baldies to your to, to, to being part of your breed association? You know, the association, you know, over time, you know, just as things evolve, you don't, I mean, you can go back 40, 50 years now and, and Hereford was king and uh, they rode that way for quite a while and probably, you know, neglected some of the things that, um, you know, needed to be uh, kept on and, and worked on and, uh, you know, one to stay Hereford on Hereford and and one to keep that commercial cow herd Hereford. And there's nothing wrong with that. We've got great tradition in our breed and it's still alive and well today, but other breeds, you know, the continental craze that came in and the push to get bigger and leaner and more muscular happened. And uh, the Hereford breed did that. And that's that's not where the Hereford breed fits. I mean, we've we've been a very efficient breed, you know, a, a more moderate sized breed, a maternal longevity breed, plain and simple. The cattle work good enough. And so our, our breeders have really made a, a massive comeback as you look at selling bulls into the commercial market of what is today in the early 2000s. That cow base was pretty well straight black or, you know, Angus influence. And so it was a great opportunity for the breed to pursue that and embrace crossbreeding. And uh, that's that's what would have started those. Uh, great research projects that we would have conducted uh, to prove that, you know, heterosis does work, um, not only in direct heterosis and pounds of calf weaned, but really where you really start getting your bang for your buck is with maternal heterosis. The pregnancy advantage, the fertility advantage you get there, uh, the longevity with still more pounds of calf weaned. And so the association, I, I don't really know of any other breed association that's probably embraced it more than Hereford. We've had a couple of national ag campaigns, actually three or four now, you know, with a baldy or red baldy. We have a program with Red Angus, uh, the premium red baldy program where both associations kind of teamed up and said, hey, the red baldies are just as good. Some people actually like them better. And so we've actually stayed um, a closed breed uh, from a registry standpoint, 
we don't register F1s, but we promote the heck out of the baldy commercial females. I mean, it's still Hereford genetics out in the world. And I, and I love to see it. You know, we talk a lot about how I prefer jerseys from a very selfish standpoint on the dairy side, because I'm a vet and they're smaller and I can work with them. And Herefords, when it comes to having a nice cow to work with, I, I mean, I can't argue with working Herefords at the shoot or anything like that from a docility standpoint, um, from a size standpoint. So again, selfishly, I have some family history that makes me say Black Angus is my favorite, but uh, working with them, I would say Hereford if I had, if I, if I could. And I, you know, I, it'll be interesting where this research takes us and, um, you know, where we go with the sustainability project. But, you know, there's been no doubt as we push carcass weights bigger and bigger within the industry, uh, we've made a bigger mama cow out in the pasture. Mm-hmm. And I think we've got to stop and question that a little bit when we get in tough environments or we get in a stressed resource where we don't have a lot of hay. Hay is getting really expensive. Inputs are getting really ex- expensive. And and have we made them better? Yeah, I would say we've made cattle better, but we've also fed them a lot harder and we fed them a lot more. And so I, I think, you know, beyond the methane and kind of those hot topics that, you know, we're going to look at, it's, it's an overall model uh, where we can make that beef cow sustainable and, and, and work at reducing some inputs. And so I really like where Herford is positioned. I mean, when you start looking at some of the research that Dave Lawman at Oklahoma State did, he, he did a similar study uh, on pasture, you know, feeding those cows on a, on a limited basis. Uh, he locked them up and, and he, he showed a baldy female, uh, ate two less pounds per day than a straight bred black female weaned the same pounds of calf, um, but that baldy female did it in a half a body condition score heavier. So there's a lot to be said right there in terms of sustainability. Uh, we can define it 20 ways till sundown, but there there's a lot of things that we want to tie this GHG data in with what we know to this point for an overall model. Well, I love that, that perspective of of looking at uh, efficiency as the number one factor. And when we we're we're a little spoiled here in Minnesota and in the Midwest, right? We make really good feed. We usually yep. aren't short of it, but that, that isn't always the case the last few years where uh, weather's been unpredictable. We've had pretty significant drought. And so I think having these gigantic cattle and mama cows hurt us. Uh, and it hurt a lot of people because we just, hay was short all of a sudden. Um, so I, I, I totally agree. I think we need to go that direction and and stay that way. One of the questions I had when we were talking about the sustainability piece of this and looking with your partnership with Colorado State and looking at that data, how are you guys also keeping in mind the, the economic sustainability factor of, of all of this? How are you working that into the fold when you're talking about gathering all this data and trying to be environmentally sustainable, but how are you going to make it also economically sustainable or look at that factor. Just a question here, Joe, are you talking about like equipment for other producers to adopt or um, what, what specifically are you asking there? Yeah. So as you, 
of course, there's going to be action items from research like this. Like these are things that we think that producers should be doing, right? Yeah. But but at some point, again, like you said, there's equipment, there's something else involved. There's big genetic changes in your herd sometimes for, for some people. Is there is there a plan to look at the economic piece and the impact of that and, and how to keep it manageable for producers? Yeah, I think the economic uh, component is is certainly a, a, a big one. And, and that, you know, kind of goes back to that selection index uh, theory that, that we we have three selection indexes today, uh, terminal index and then the Baldy maternal index and then the Brahmin influence index. And those are essentially our Hereford bulls being used on either English based cows or Brahmin influence cows. And so what we envision with this research, this greenhouse gas data is, you know, potentially developing a trait that can fit into one of those indexes to serve as a selection tool and a weight in an index like what we have today, or we develop our own sustainability kind of index that looks at cow, mature cow size, uh, efficiency, greenhouse gas data, and how they all kind of fit together. You know, not doing this research before, we don't know what this greenhouse gas data will look like relative to other traits, you know, and so it may be as easy as putting selection pressure on some of our well-established economically relevant traits we already have today to get the response that we need uh, for a producer to move forward and, and be more profitable or more sustainable. That's the direction that I, I love that I see people going is that most of the time when we're talking environmental sustainability and we're talking efficiency, and if that's what we lead with, then that takes care of the economic side all by itself, right? If you're going to be more efficient, you're going to be more economically sustainable in almost every case, right? So I, I love that this is the approach and that it's all tied together because um, I think sometimes the two get spread apart and that environmentally sustainable has to be expensive, but it doesn't. If we're talking about efficiency, they can be one in the same. Yeah, we just, we want our producers to be, you know, when we, you know, when the time comes and it it's probably going to come at some point, uh, we want our producers to be ready to address whatever issue comes from, you know, the consumer, whatever pressures come to our industry we want to be able to have some answers. And uh, that's what I'm probably the most proud about is that when we brought this to our board of directors for the association, they really saw it as a, uh, th there was no pushback. They're like, absolutely, you know, we need to be leaders in this area and, uh, you know, find out what, what we don't know. So I have a question for you, Shane. You mentioned early on uh, when you're talking about this study and building this model, you called it, and wanting to put together this model and using, you know, Herefords as the baseline for that. Um, you know, I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that, you know, just the idea of creating this model and then what are the next steps with it and how could this be scaled or used in other applications? Hopefully th this is a pipe dream, right? Um, you got to aim for the stars, right, to get somewhere. But, uh, you know, in an ideal world, you know, that that Hereford bull um, is pretty dominant. You can tell if he's been there or not with that white face, you know, whatever he's crossed with. And so, 
you know, in a, in a perfect world, when, when somebody sees a white face animal, they know that that animal is economically fit and environmentally sustainable and, you know, can be, you know, profitable. And that's, that's where we want to keep it on a, on a big focus. We're going to find, I think, uh, cattle in our population, you know, no different than Holstein Jersey or some of the other dairy breeds. There's as much variation within breed than there is across breeds. And so if we can find the set of cattle that can take us into the next 50 years that uh, have all the, the good traits that we've worked so hard on to get to this point, and we can uh, improve on them that much more with what we're getting faced with from a consumer standpoint. And I, I think that's where we want to scale it, you know, and so whether that's an EPD, whether that's an index, whether that's some kind of a model that our producers can use to help them better select cattle, that's, that's kind of where we're going with that. So I, I think from a dairy perspective, I think there is advantage to utilizing other breeds uh, from a heterosis standpoint for dairy beef crossing. And, and Hereford obviously might not be one of the uh, prominent breeds in, in sort of dairy beef crossing, but I think there's a lot of uh, advantages in my mind that Hereford could bring to the table from crossing to with, with dairy cattle as well. And I hope that that continues. I'm going to, we're, we're, we're branching out into that. And Brad's going to start a research study here with utilizing different breeds on, on the dairy herd here to, to do some crossing from a dairy beef perspective to, to look at that. Uh, Cause I'm not convinced that there's one breed that has it all that works for Holsteins or other crossing. Yeah. So we're, we actually have a little study going on ourselves with that, Brad. And, um, there's other breeds that are more terminally focused and that's mm -hmm. fine. Um, honestly, that's where a little bit of this conversation started to go down this path. Uh, what uh, was in the conversation to even begin the research because of all the, not other breeds, not all the other breeds, but a lot of them, you know, the beef on dairy mm -hmm. uh, business is booming and there is a lot of demand through the studs to find uh excellent beef bulls that work on on dairy cows and, and heifers and whatnot. And so it was one of those things we said, well, is that the place where Hereford fits? We thought, you know, yes, there's a certain part of our breed that can be really good at it at that. But as a large whole and and where we could really help the industry uh was was probably with the the mama cow out in the pasture and uh from a longevity and and overall doability standpoint and so it'll be interesting what we've learned to this point using herefords in those uh, herds that we've tried them is that the fertility and conception has been amazing uh the dairymen have been impressed with that here at the front part of our study uh we'll get calves here this fall and so we'll we'll figure out one what they look like <laughs> um <laughs> um I'm guessing they'll be baldies, but they could have a little more chrome on them. Right. I know they'll right. be baldies, but they'll, they'll have a little more chrome on them. But, you know, I, I'm interested to see how they feed and uh, if our conversion feed efficiency holds up. And we put enough selection pressure, I think, on the carcass traits where we'll know kind of where that ends up. Right. Yeah, that sounds like a very interesting study. And yep. uh, that'd be, yeah. Very interested to hear the results when that happens, uh, yep. how that fares out. 
I've got one question. And and since you're here and you're in charge of breed improvement, one of the things that I was wondering if we've emphasized on the Hereford side is pulled genetics. Because I know there's still a big contingent of Herefords that still have horns out there. What has your stance been on that? Yeah, so the association would have merged, uh, the two associations, the Pold and Horn Association would have merged in 1995. That was a major challenge for both organizations to come forward, as you can imagine. Uh, two strong associations that were pretty well rooted and had a lot of history. You know, I, I think with those leaders at that time, what they saw that maybe some of the other folks in the association didn't at the time is that we could be so much stronger together um, and marketing together and moving forward together rather than, okay, this person wants to use a Hereford bull in their commercial outfit. Well, use a horn one. No, that guy's got pulled, you know. I mean, we spent so much time fighting over what Hereford to use uh, rather than just saying, hey, let's get this commercial guy a good Hereford bull. And uh, we've been able to make so much more progress since, I think, that time. Uh, as a registry today, I mean, we still distinguish them. And our registry pulled from horn, and we would lean, we would definitely lean more pulled than horn uh, today uh, to the tune of probably 65% of the, of the cattle registered each year pulled versus horn. And it's amazing. Uh, you can you can drive a hundred miles in the same state and run into a pole breeder and run into a horn breeder and they've got customers in those states and they uh they uh well customers like a horn bull customers like a pole bull really doesn't matter as long as they're using a herford bull we're making them good and we're keeping them sound and uh, doing the things that herfords are known for in the modern times i would add to that joe i guess you know, with DNA testing, we have more and more folks, especially on the seed stock side, but even now on the commercial side, that want them homozygous pole. You know, and so that that trend is definitely uh, increasing here as we've we've gone forward. Well, and that's that's a again from a veterinary perspective, just a very selfish thing on my end. I, I don't like horns because I don't like working with horns because I think. They can be dangerous. They're tough on my chute. They're tough on carcasses. And I don't like removing them uh, because it's hard on cattle. So right. uh, that's that's my personal opinion. And I just I just had to ask because I know that that's a that's still a big, big piece of the Hereford world. I have a I have a quick question. When we're talking about certified Hereford beef, are we talking about it has to be 100% Hereford or are we talking baldies as well or only red baldies? How does that work? Do you see it changing in the future? Yeah, so the certified Hereford beef uh, live spec that was established there in 95 was that they had to be 51% white faced or, or greater, you know, and so baldies do fit into it as long as they have... Uh, more than that 51% white face um, there to, to look at. And it's it's English based, you know, with that. And so an English cross. And so your red Angus, red baldies, your black baldies, of course, the straight Herefords would fit still into that program. Um, the white face is dominant and will be dominant. But I will say as breeders have put more selection pressure on pigment, 
um, as far as making making them red to the ground and darker red in color than uh, some of the other older kind of traditional. You know, we went through a time there where they were kind of an off yellow and and different things. So, you know, we have seen less of those cattle have that white face, um, more of a model or a brockle face in that F1 cross. And, you know, we're at a point in time where we're seeing more demand for a branded beef program. And so we have a spec or a line in our G10 schedule with USDA if they are parent verified back to a Hereford sire. Uh, that they can still be eligible for the program. We're not quite to that point from a demand because there's a ton of those cattle still out, but I think we're approaching it. And so it is something that we talk about, and I hope we get to that point. You know, that research at Colorado State um, showed that even in the F1 cattle, that Hereford influence made a difference. And so that's why that that spec was kind of set up with allowing the baldies to come in it and, and the, the advantages that it, that it had over, you know, the straight. So very good question. And I appreciate you asking it. The reason I ask is because it, it sets up the, the situation where you've got uh, a black baldy that can qualify for two different programs. Now that's really intriguing to me. And I, and I love it because it, it, it sets up direct com- competition for, a branded program that had no competition really for a long time. Mm-hmm. And so I, I love that certified Hereford beef is getting bigger and growing and is is moving into that space where there is competition for certified Angus beef. It, you, you, you nailed it right on the head there, Joe, you know, that's, it's great to be able to tell a producer that you're selling bulls to that, Hey, you know, depending on um, what you want to do with these cattle and where you're selling them, uh, they can fit into multiple different grids and, and opportunities to to earn a little premium. So, so one of the things we've been doing uh, lately, Shane, is with our guests is inviting them to ask us questions if they have any. I don't know if you have any. It's fun to put Brad on the spot. So if you have anything. You know, we, we kind of talked about it a little bit, but, you know, just the beef on dairy uh, cross, you know, part of that. And uh, we kind of covered, you know, the research aspect of that. But I guess an area that I'm interested in of of improving on is bull fertility. You know, it seems like BSEs are kind of the, you know, the old, you know, and Joe, you you do a ton of BSEs, but they don't seem to be uh, maybe getting us to the point. We spend so much time worrying about how many cows we get bred and first AI, second AI, and putting all the pressure on the females. There's got to be some kind of a research that we can figure out where we can predict better bull fertility and make progress in that aspect to move all of our industries forward. So I'm I'm curious to get a dairy uh, perspective mm-hmm. on what w- we need to be looking at and what we haven't looked at to this point. Yeah, go ahead, Brad. You, you start. Yeah, that's a that's a good question, Shane. I you know and. There are a few people at the University of Wisconsin working on bull fertility from a dairy perspective to try and increase, you know, fertility of that bull, whether it's, you know, motility of sperm. Um, You know, we don't necessarily look much at scrotal circumference, anything like that uh, type of traits. It's some of the things that we are getting 
you know, in the dairy world, we, we talk PTAs, we're getting conception rates, uh, sire conception rates, how well does that sire do on cows versus how well they do on heifers. So you can, you know, kind of pick and choose whether this particular sire, you know, maybe you avoid it for heifers because the fertility just isn't there with heifers, whereas in the cows, it's much better. So, in, and those are new even from a dairy perspective that we've just started exploring that kind of stuff from a, a, a for bull fertility standpoint. And I think the sky's the limit as far as that to try and, and, and I'm also interested and I've talked with other dairy producers as well as beef producers to, it really comes down to maybe sire complement, complementing different sires. You know, you maybe use this sire on this group of uh, daughters uh, sired by that bull. So you're really picking, you know, sires to deal with other sires of different breeds. And it, it really comes down to precision breeding, I guess I could say uh, that it, it's kind of moving to, towards that direction. So do you, you think at some point there'll be a marker where we can test a, a, a young bull and know uh, whether this is a guy we really need to take on or or just say hey you know he's he's better suited for somewhere else in the, in the right I, I agree yes i think we're we're getting to that point especially in the dairy world trying to identify some markers uh, and and genes that are are set up to do that right away so when we get a, a genomic evaluation back on a young bull that's you know a couple months old we can determine whether he's going to be good for conception rate fertility uh, on on cows or heifers uh, at a few months old, so we can then we can determine whether he should go to the feedlot or whether he should go into the breeding program. Right, right, right. I think some of the onus when we talk BSEs, especially, is on my profession for sure. There's been a lot of updates in the last three to five years on the requirements for a BSE, and so when we're doing BSE exams. Uh, the the requirements have changed, the techniques have changed, everything has changed. So you've got a very slow adoption to these new BSE standards uh, across the profession uh, as you see the generation turnover. So that's going to take some time, unfortunately. We do have good standards that give us good bulls on natural service and have specific numbers tied to specific things that you're looking for. But uh, getting everyone to adopt those standards is the first challenge on the veterinary side. And then, you know, of course, there's the challenge of getting producers to actually do a BSE on their bull. Um, uh, that, that's a whole other discussion. And we've, we've kind of probably beat that one into the ground on this podcast before. But so that's part of it. You know, when we talk about the dairy side and that I get really, really nervous and it's the reason I get so nervous when we're talking about unproven bulls on the dairy side, because of all the things that Brad was talking about. You know, this we don't know what this bull does with cows versus heifers versus AI versus natural service uh, versus sex semen. And that can be huge and vastly different. Every specific little category can be just massive. And you see that when guys take chances on these really young, unproven bulls, and you can see them have great numbers on the fertility for conventional semen. And then when they go to the sex semen, conception cuts in half. And you don't lose just that 10%. You lose a, a crazy amount more. So mm -hmm. there's just 
very, very specific things for each bowl. And that's where I think I'm I'm in the camp where on the genetic side, I, I, I rein things in and I pull stuff back, which I know sounds probably pretty weird for, for breed improvement, but I like to stay not all the way on the cutting edge, but on those bulls that are really proven. And I can, I, I know what they're going to do in every single situation. I think that's that gradual, steady, long-term growth from that perspective is better than trying to take these giant leaps because there's these bulls in there that we don't have enough information on yet that set us back a little bit. Good question. Any other questions, Shane? No, I appreciate you guys having, having me be a part of this. It's, it's fun to collaborate and share ideas and i just can't thank you enough for having me be a part of your podcast shane but before we kind of do our outro here i do have one final question for you yeah um and that is i was looking around on the american hereford association website hereford.org and i noticed that you guys have a podcast 1881 so could you briefly tell us a little bit about your podcast and some of our listeners might be interested in listening to that one too yeah, so we would have started 1881 last spring. Usually have one a month, sometimes two a month. And uh, we've covered a variety of topics, but it's a little bit about the people that make up the breed, uh, some of our Hall of Famers and uh, some different stories of some very successful breeders. To We have a, a great, great one on crossbreeding. We covered the history of line one cattle mm-hmm. in uh, one of those podcasts. We just finished up with our junior national, our summer junior show there in Louisville, Kentucky. And so we kind of did a little bit of a recap on that, but it's, uh, it's taking shape as we speak. <laughs> it, it's been a lot of fun uh, starting the, the the podcast. I'm I'm not the uh, specialist on tell, telling you where to go <laughs> look for it, but it is, it is on our website. And I think all of the uh, channels that podcast folks follow podcast on, it's on. Perfect. I will make sure it's in the show notes so people can just click on it and get right there. That's definitely worth a listen. Okay. Well, we certainly uh, thank you, Shane, for joining us on our podcast today. I think uh, all of us learned uh, an enormous amount about Hereford and uh, Hereford genetics and and where the American Hereford Association is going in the future. And and it's been a wonderful uh, opportunity to to have you on today. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much. And guys keep up the good work. So Emily, would you like to lead us out since I I don't want to screw up today? (laughs) I would love to. If you have any questions, comments, or scathing rebuttals about today's podcast, you can email those to themoosroom at umn.edu. That's T-H-E-M-O-O-S-R-O-O-M at umn.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter at umnmoosroom. If you'd like to learn more about extension programming, you can visit extension.umn.edu. And again, if you'd like to learn more about the American Hereford Association, you can visit hereford.org. And you can also find their podcast, 1881. Bye. 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 I didn't mean to cut you off, Joe, but you're sick. So I just assumed like. No, no, I should have known you were going to take it instead. Because, yeah, yeah, my voice sounds ridiculous. I haven't talked much on this episode, so. (laughs) <laughs> Needed to hear your voice, huh? Mm-hmm.